I'm Matt Schrader, and this is a special bonus interview episode of Blockbuster. Joining me today, or rather I'm joining him here at his home in Northern California, is the most prolific underwater cinematographer maybe in all of history, Al Giddings. Al, thanks for uh, having us here with you. My pleasure, Matt. You heard Al going on dives to the Titanic with James Cameron, some of which almost ended in disaster. So I want to ask you about some of those. Al has also directed groundbreaking documentaries. I think your first was Mysteries of the Sea. Bill Holden uh, narrated. Emmy Award winning uh, documentary director for that. And also worked on major motion pictures that filmed underwater. Obviously, Titanic, but also The Abyss, um, a couple James Bond films. First, I want people to know a little bit about your beginnings. You started diving in your late teens, early 20s, up here in Northern California, probably not too far from, from where we are. What first made you want to take a camera into the ocean? In those early days, everyone was shooting with a spear gun up and down the coast. Uh, the big sort of accomplishment was uh, spearing lingcod and diving for abalones and so on. And what I saw was so stunning the undersea world was so untapped and and so, so very stunning, the kelp forests and so on. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to shoot with a camera? And so very early on, I bought an Argus C3 Matchmatic, uh, uh, an old 35 millimeter still camera and, and engineered some changes to a 46 Ford oil filter. Okay. A pressure vessel. Yep. <laughs> and ended up with a little window in it and the ability to wind and fire the camera and, and uh, started taking pictures. And um, it was wildly novel in those days. And um, So you were a bit of a tinkerer even then. You know, few people, Matt, really realized that I would spend... Even in the later years, half my day in the office doing business and phone calls and and whatever I was involved in. And at noon, one o'clock, I'd say to Margaret, my assistant, uh, I'm out. And I'd go back into the shop and work on uh, the next most exciting underwater camera system, whether it was IMAX or in the later years or whether it was uh, high definition. Mm-hmm. Sure. And wanted to take that technology and and the the newest cameras underwater. When did you first realize you were onto something? It took a lot of years. I mean, the first 10 years we were taking pictures and showing them locally and and, uh, there was a little underwater film group that came together doing stills and so on. Uh, How did your average regular person react to the photos that you were taking? Well, in those days, anything underwater was so novel that, yeah. uh, that you know, it would play, as they say. And, uh, you know, I look back on those images now and they're, they're you know, very, very bizarre and, and very simple. Imagine the first picture I ever saw was to Motorland Magazine, uh, three perch hovering over a rock at Catalina Island. They paid me 35 Dollars and I, <laughs> however dimly, uh, or however dim a light went on, and I thought, God, could I, could I make a living doing this? My father, of course, said, "Are you crazy? Go to work for the phone company." Yeah, and right. uh, forget this underwater thing. Yeah, and uh, anyway, little by little, 
16 millimeter cameras. We played around with 100 foot loads and three or four minutes of runtime. And I got really interested in the optics mm -hmm. and uh, correcting lenses underwater. A standard lens would be magnified through a flat port. So we started looking at hemispheres and believe it or not. And this is based, for those who don't know, this is to counteract the effect that the water has on the yeah, picture. Yeah, you know when you're snorkeling in a swimming pool with a mask, everything's magnified. Sure. Well, the same thing happens to a, a lens uh, and a camera system. So you can return sort of everything to its optical uh, sorts by using a hemisphere, shooting through a curved uh, lens, if you will. And strangely enough, Danforth at the time made eight-inch compass covers, mm -hmm. or a, a, a hemisphere. And those were an optical-grade uh, uh, plastic. Uh, and so some, I sh actually, I shot the deep using a compass cover as a front lens. And, oh, interesting. Uh, and it played, I mean, optically they were perfect. Imagine, you know, a hundred thousand dollar camera and and a hundred thousand in lenses, but ultimately shooting through a downforce compass cover. People scratched their heads and wondered uh, how could this be, but uh, the results were were on the screen, as they say. This is the nineteen sixties when you start your company that starts doing a lot of these. Uh, specialty underwater cameras, basically. You're shipping all over the world to a lot of different places. That all led into some other kind of small projects that I think led to bigger ones. The uh, I don't know if you remember the actor Cornell Wilde. Mm -hmm. This goes way back. Cornell contacted me. I was shooting 16-millimeter documentary films at the time and was doing a feature called Shark's Treasure, and asked if uh, if I'd work with him. We had a meeting, and he wanted a big shark uh, sequence. Uh, I suggested Australia. I think the film was probably a $3 million film. Mm -hmm. We shot the shark action in Australia on 16 and, uh, and blew that up to 35 for his presentation and, and use in the film. And it was that footage that John Veach and Peter Goober and uh, and George Justin at Columbia Pictures saw and said, uh, can we speak to this uh, young man? And, and uh, a deal was put together. I built three cameras and the deep was, was filmed. So this is shortly after Jaws has just blown up and now everyone is, there's knockoffs that are coming out and there's a lot of interest in the Peter ocean Bench, all of a sudden. Peter Benchley was hot. Wrote yep. Jaws, and, and that went through the roof. And, uh, and Goober produced The Deep. I met Peter uh, and had a lot of answers for his, uh, his questions at the time, uh, where to shoot and what cameras to use and how we would, we would get it done. And uh, that was the beginning of a, a long friendship. I saw Peter last week in mm -hmm. uh, San Francisco. He now owns the Golden State Warriors. And among <laughs> he's doing many good. other things, right. he's, he's had been wildly successful. But Peter's first movie was The Deep. And right after that, he produced Close Encounters, 
Columbia was in Chapter 11 at the time, and uh, and between the two movies, they grossed almost 300 million. Yep. This is in the 70s. Can you imagine? And and uh, Columbia was back on the boards. That's right. Yeah. Close Encounters was a film they threw a lot of money at Steven Spielberg because um, that was his next picture after Jaws at that time. What did you like about being a director of photography on a narrative film? The task was interesting. It wasn't just sort of pulling the trigger. It was designing underwater cameras that would perform in different focal lengths and to try and approach underwater feature films the way a creative topside DP would approach shooting uh, a feature topside. Sure. So the exciting challenge was to deliver material that the editors would love. They would have not just a wide angle coverage of the set as had been the case for 30 years underwater. Right. Or so this was really or, kind of a novel approach that you're, was, you're starting to invent. I was trying to use the creative tools that a, that a topside DP would use underwater. It was an exciting time, a very innovative time. One project leads to the next, leads to the next, and they keep escalating in ambition. Several years later, I guess this is almost 10 years later, with The Abyss, how did you first come across James Cameron? Uh, Jim called. I had a studio then in, in Oakland mm-hmm. uh, near the airport and uh, said, uh, introduced himself, said, I'd love to come up and chat with you, see your setup and talk to you about a film project. And I said, um, of course. He said, this is Jim Cameron. And I said, how do you spell it? And I'm, j- I'm joking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Jim Cameron wasn't Jim Cameron at that point in time. Anyway, right. Jim came up. And he saw from our setup and machine shop, the camera systems, the optical approaches and all that, uh, that yes, we really had, you know, the lion's share of technology at that point in time. So this is probably 1987 or so, maybe 1988. I would guess. Yeah, yeah. It was an innovative time, but there was little competition. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Frequently at cocktail parties, people would come up and say, Ali must be the most uh, prolific and the most talented underwater filmmaker around. And I used to love to say, uh, thank you so much. But um, understand, um, I'm, I, like, I think I'm in the top 10. However, there's only three of us. so the advantage that I had, you know, very few people involved and certainly nobody pursued all those different ends. Uh, By that, I mean building the camera systems, building the lighting systems and being, you know, being excited about that end of the engineering and then ultimately delivering a negative that uh, hopefully people swooned over. Did you notice anything different about James than some of the other directors you'd worked with on other films at that point. Extremely intent, talented. I was surprised early on that Jim said, I'll be there for every shot. Matt, imagine we used 10,500 scuba bottles in 91 days on the abyss. <laughs> Jim was underwater with me, shoulder to shoulder, for the entire 90 plus days. I mean, that's a brutal physical commitment. I mean, really quite unbelievable. 
Usually the topside director came in and looked at it and said, okay, fine, a few dives. They kind of tuck said, her out with after it, a few. And, right. you know, that was the end of it. But Jim, bless his heart, was there underwater through it all, through the decompression, through the, the breakdowns, through the problems and so on. And, I, and imagine we were, because we needed a black set and light leaks were an issue, we'd go in the water at six in the evening mm-hmm. in an eight million gallon set in South Carolina that was covered. And I built three filling stations. So the principals, Jim, myself, the other camera guys, and the actors or actresses could actually hook up on the bottom and top off their tanks without surfacing. Oh, interesting. So we'd go in at six in the morning, or I'm sorry, we'd go in at six in the evening and, and work until until midnight five or six or seven of us while others shuttled back and forth to the surface just living underwater we'd get out and i ranged for hot tubs and it was cold winter south carolina and we'd um, sit and talk about the next shots and lay out the work for the for the next uh five or six hours we'd get back in the water at one in the morning and we'd come out at dawn so we're spending 12 hours underwater uh Per, per day, six, seven days a week, decompression was a problem. I won't sort of go into that, but it was complicated. Right. We yeah. had to breathe oxygen after a dive at 10 feet. The set was about 40. Then Jim and uh, Chuck and a couple of others, myself, would go back to our apartments, watch Good Morning America, breathing pure oxygen for another hour and a half, as dictated by Dr. Peter Bennett, Duke University, who came. I asked uh, Bennett to come to the set and counsel us. Yeah, advise you a little. Nobody had ever had that kind of exposure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, coming back to Jim, he was there for every step of it. I mean, how could you not admire that? I mean, I was built, you know, uh, to... And spent all of my young years in the water, was a competitive swimmer, and, and uh, the subcutaneous layer helped a bit, <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, for somebody else to to stay, you know, with it shoulder to shoulder, I don't mean swim every shot, but direct it and be exposed for those hours was remarkable. Well, did you get the sense early on that you shared a, a, a similar upbringing Jim's interests in in scuba and yeah I think uh you know we were both pretty committed and would leave no stone unturned to produce the finest product and uh and leave blood on the table (laughs) our own yeah right Coming up after this I want to ask you about the beginnings of Titanic so more with Al Giddings right after this and we're back here with Al Giddings. You grew up here in the Bay Area and uh, with the ocean close by. We've talked a little bit about maybe some things that you have in common with uh, James Cameron, who grew up within earshot of Niagara Falls. You must feel like you're still a kid uh, doing a lot of the work that you were doing. Well, if you look at Jim's background, he, he was very interested in marine biology 
and I was too. My uh, my father was a state fish and game captain. I grew up uh, around uh, fish and game biologists, and 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 both of us, you know, loved the ocean and and that that whole environment, and found inner space, if you will, you know, fascinating. And uh, so, yeah, that was that was real common ground. And he had enough scuba experience to really talk the the um, the walk, so to speak. And sure. uh, yes, yeah, so we had that in common. And both really committed to you know whatever it it would take to deliver. Sure. Uh, you know, I always felt if I made a contract with somebody and said I would do X, Y, and Z, and and it was just a point of pride. Jim takes that to another level. I mean, uh, you know, never have I worked with anybody so committed. I mean, Jim doesn't, you know, as far as I know, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't do drugs. He does mainline movies. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's uh, an outrageous person to work with, uh, you know, full of wild emotions and, and uh, at times miscues personally. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but what he delivers in the end is, uh, is remarkable. The Abyss was ambitious in so many ways, but when it was released, it was not the hit that at least Jim anticipated. How did you process that whole thing when the movie maybe didn't perform quite as well as what everyone was hoping? Matt, this could be my version, but uh, I think Jim was pressed in the end by Fox, who was panicked over the rising cost and budget uh, overruns and whatever. Sure. And I think, as I recall, they really forced Jim's hand and pressed him to deliver. And the only way I think Jim could do that was to farm out some of the special effects. And at a number of points, I think those effects done by others got a laugh. And I don't think you can get a laugh in the middle of a film of that magnitude. Sure. And and it crippled the film. The film was was hammered from the standpoint of uh, it not being all Cameron's vision and having elements that were substandard and Jim's sort of standard. And um, and Fox made a mistake. They didn't, you know, in the end, I think, you know, Jim at one point gave up a lot of his uh, income, I think, on Titanic and said, you know, damn it, let me finish this film. Let me finish the vision. You know, here's my money for this and here's my income from that. And he gave up, you know, a lot yeah. uh, to And you to think that was finish the partially film. informed by this, yeah, by the to, abyss? To, you know, not make that mistake again and to right. finish the film per his vision. Mm-hmm. Thank God Bill Mechanic and others uh, did yield and uh, the rest of its history. Several years passed. James goes on. He does Terminator 2, working on True Lies. During that point, you do this dive to Titanic for Titanic Treasures of the Deep, a, a one-hour special. Tell me how this came about because you held a screening of this and you personally invited Jim. Peter Goober and I produced Titanic Treasure of the Deep. Mm-hmm. I went out with the Russians 
and uh, and produced a very exciting sort of groundbreaking documentary in our television special on on Titanic. The Academy asked if I would screen it for the members, and I said fine. Went to Los Angeles uh, and uh, and screened the film. A few days before I left, I called Jim Cameron and said, Jim, and invited Jim to the Academy screening of my television documentary. But did you think he would show I up? Said, I said, you have to see this. It, you know, we both had that that interest in the oceans and diving and the sea and all that business. And you knew so, he'd like this. So he said, I knew he'd like it. So he said, okay, fine, I'll be there. So I kept a couple of seats, and uh, and Jim showed up with his brother about two minutes before the this lights, is Mike went, Cameron. lights went down. Uh-huh. With Mike, and uh, they sat with me, and Jim started ooing and aahing straight away because he could see the capabilities of the submarine and the fact that, like on the Abyss, I had outfitted the submersibles with HMI lighting, Mm -hmm. which meant we could really light, you know, effectively underwater. And we're working at 12,460 feet. So anyway, Jim sat and kind of mumbled right away, wow, look at this, Mm, interesting, interesting. Then there was one famous shot where Anatoly Sigalovich, the Russian uh, pilot. Uh Who you met for this project. Yes. Yep. We ended up at the bow of Titanic at 2.10 in the morning, then slowly hovered up helicopter-like up over the bow. When Jim saw that shot, he... as I recall, sort of half stood up saying, oh, my God, this is my next movie. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And take me to take me to take me to Russia. You know, introduce <laughs> and you, me you to, going, to the Russians. Please, and you're pe- my guest. <laughs> that's, that, Matt, that, that was happening. People were shushing him. You know, there was eight, nine hundred Academy members there. Right. And they were all going, cool it, you know, knock yeah. it off. Yeah. That night, the lights went up. The screening was a big success. I was thrilled. And a hundred people were trying to lean into our aisle to say, Al, very cool and all. Yeah. But Jim was in my face and he said, what are you doing now? When are you doing this? I'm finishing True Lies. Take me to Russia. Introduce me to, to Sigalovich. I've got to see these submarines. Do you think he's serious? He was totally serious. I could tell that. And I thought, how cool. If Even if we were to make a dozen shots on the ship itself, I immediately thought the advertising would be really terrific. In other words, the films, you know, advertising would carry the fact that you're actually going to see the real ship. And we went to the to the depths of, you know, twelve and a half thousand feet to to make make you know make this film. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And um, and we flew to Moscow, and I introduced him to Sigalovich and the system that I had used. This is a great place for us to take a quick break. So. Coming up after this, I want to ask you about going to Russia with James. So we'll be right back with Al Giddings. We're back with Al Giddings, a legendary underwater filmmaker. I'd say top 10, probably. There's more than 10 around now, though, aren't there? (laughs) Yes, there must be. But certainly a a legend. I want to go to the story of you visiting Russia with James Cameron. Went to Moscow. I introduced him to Sigalovich. And then we went from there. We flew to Kaliningrad. And boarded Keldish, and Jim got his first look at the submarines. And immediately started thinking about outfitting this and outfitting that and so on. And um, and Anatoly would take me aside and, you know, say, 
you know, we're desperate for money. The Soviet Union's falling apart and things are, you know, there are no budgets for research anymore. Right. Sigalovich, Dr. Sigalovich and the two submersibles were, for the most part, being used as as research, you know, deep ocean uh, yeah. biology and research. Anyway, Anatoly was hoping, praying that there would be a sizable budget involved. So he was pitching and Jim was on the take, you know, wanted to wanted to use them desperately. And uh, and so, you know, within hours and a, and a lot of cognac and vodka <laughs> and all, Jim was not a drinker, but he did, he did uh, <laughs> sure. put away a few there. Yeah. Uh, you know, a deal was struck. The, uh, the Russians... Uh, and Sigalovich and the Shershov Institute had some wonderful income possibilities, and uh, and things started to really gel. So it seemed within a few hours, you already knew where this is things going to be a go. Everybody knew that it was a serious effort. Every you know, it, everyone was aware that you know Fox was behind it. Jim was golden. He was totally serious, and he is you know the consummate uh, person with respect to quick uptake and uh, sure. and he immediately saw not only in my film of the academy but you know once he he grilled anatoly about you know duration bottom duration and how you know uh, how much power they could put out and light for how long and so on um, he was convinced to ask all the right questions in hours that this was going to be a very cool thing this is a, a research vessel and this is used primarily for scientific pursuits. In your case of the documentary before, it was something that obviously had an educational uh, purpose to it. Now you're going and saying this is for a narrative movie. Hollywood is involved all of a sudden. How did that weigh on the minds of the, the Russians? Dr. Sigalovich could clearly see that Russia in deep trouble and the income to support his babies, his research project uh, was no longer available. And in fact, the ship was uh, you know, at a pier in, uh, in, uh, in the north and, uh, and doing nothing. And their crews were standing down and, and it was a grim time. So it was income that would keep the system alive, and Anatoly was desperate to do that. Jim understood that. There was no, you know, sort of um, bargaining and carrying on and so on. Uh, it fit. It was a great fit for everyone. I was excited about it. I love the Russians. The research group uh, was just the very, very best. I mean, we had no common political interest or, or military concerns. Uh, these were all sea people interested in, uh, in the same objectives and, and goals. And You shared scientific interests. Yeah. The, the money that could be generated from, uh, for the Russians from a feature film uh, would, would underwrite their next, uh, their next research uh, expedition. Do you think they had any idea of how serious James Cameron would take his filming? I think they knew he was serious. He, they, they knew I'd worked with him a lot already. They knew where I was coming from. Uh, but no one, 
yours truly included, had a clue as to, you know, the, the legs or the, the magnitude of, 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 of Titanic. You know, I quick little insert after Titanic played around the world and became, you know, this incredible blockbuster. I was in Beijing standing on uh, a sidewalk and some gals came up, a couple of Chinese students and said, are you an American? And I said, yes. How could you tell? <laughs> I was, you know, <laughs> two feet taller than they were. And uh, they said, we're art students, and uh, we love to talk to Americans. And uh, and what do you do for a living in America? I said, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, what films have you done that we might know? And I said, um, Titanic. I almost had to, to get help and administer mouth to mouth. I mean, they were just about <laughs> fainted. I mean, both of them. I mean, Titanic played around the world at a level. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And none of us imagined it at the moment, of course. Let's move ahead to 1985. You guys are going to basically the middle of the ocean. I think about a third of the way across. You're going to dive 12,000 feet down. You've already done this once. James has not. Can I ask you to maybe explain how it's different diving... 12,000 feet versus diving 500 feet in a submersible. Matt, try to imagine the fact that it, all of our dives took three to three and a half hours, free fall, no tether, no connection to the surface to reach 12,460. It's also a three-hour trip back to the surface. So when you start diving 8, 10, 12,000 feet, uh, you better have a system that's reliable and uh, back up for all manner of things. And, uh, and you're really committed. I mean, a day in a launch, imagine the submarine would be put in the water, back away from the ship so that it wouldn't, wouldn't crash into the ship in big seas and so on. There'd be a NASA-like 25 to 40-minute count down where the ship crew would request checks by the pilot and and the people the three people in the submersible that would take you know 40 minutes or so sort again a nasa like countdown then you'd pull the plug get heavy and you'd fall for three to three and a half hours through the water column again no connection no tether to the surface twelve and a half thousand feet you realize a pressure of six thousand psi 6,000 pounds per square inch. So imagine the submersible, the forward portion of the submersible is an eight or seven foot titanium sphere, three and a half inches thick. So the, the, the amount of pressure on that sphere, amount of pressure on those windows, the amount of pressure on all those systems is, uh, is enormous. I mean, it's really almost beyond uh, comprehension. And life support system oxygen backup, uh, barrel lime and chemical scrubbers that scrub out CO2, all of those issues are enhanced uh, when you start to plumb depths like that uh, by a factor of 100. Was there a moment when you first got your first, the first frame you lined up and you thought, wow, this is something special that we're, we're capturing right here? Do you oh, remember yeah. what that was? Yeah. Uh, we, were, we were on the main deck no, we're actually, I think, on the officer's quarter deck. And there was this 
series of windows that were open. And uh, they weren't ports, round ports. They were square, almost square windows and uh, all of bronze and uh, just a whole row of them open and who opened them and and, uh, what were those last moments like and why were they all open? And were people, you know, sort of trying to dive out of those windows last resort? And it was just a beautiful setup because the, the sub was sitting on the deck and I could I could slowly pan left to right and pull focus down this row of windows. Uh, I felt it just had a life to it that, um, that, that was special. And you realized you're capturing the kind of thing that nobody's ever captured before. That's correct. That was also the case on the bottom. Imagine in those days before the French took so many artifacts that We'd zoom across the bottom. We would see engine order telegraph, you know, the personal effects, uh, baggage, plates, uh, all kinds of fabulous, you know, things related to that human tragedy. What was James' reaction to seeing Titanic for the first time? I remember him coming out of the submarine. Uh-huh. And just standing at the top of the ladder, you know, with the big victory signal and and his arms raised and uh, and a you know a glow that comes from that kind of cutting edge adventure. Uh, you know, Jim loves that stuff. He was pretty jazzed. <laughs> you were on board uh, the, the Keldish. The Russians invited you all into a lot of their traditions. What, what was all of that like for me? That all came down the first time I was with the Russians. And uh, I remember that everybody, all the Russians, the crew, down to ladies that would take care of the, the staterooms and all of that, would avoid eye contact. And uh, kind of a glance away, and uh, there wasn't a lot of conversation. And, and I immediately tried to break through that with winks and and high five and whatever and uh a week later anatoly had the first ship party and they had a great store of booze and uh (laughs) what kind of booze let me guess huh (laughs) what kind of booze everything from vodka to wine to beer to whatever (laughs) okay i think actually we left newfoundland once and i contributed to this bond out of my budget and I think we bought $21,000 worth of liquor. Okay. Can you imagine? <laughs> That's a you lot. You know, a month at sea and 100 people and right. whatever. You're there with sailors. Yeah. And, and uh, anyway, Anatoly, bless his heart, was very aware of those social moments and how how important they were. And so the first Thursday, Friday, whenever it was, we had a great ship's party and everybody got plastered, and and, uh, and that was a breakthrough. After that, I couldn't reach for something. I couldn't ask for something. I couldn't couldn't need anything that wasn't uh, responded to in a second. Uh, and when I left, I left Newfoundland the first time. This is before Jim, with tears in my eyes. I mean, it was a fantastic experience. Again, our common ground was nothing political. It was to see see people doing their thing. Coming up, I want to ask you about the danger of these dives. There's several moments, obviously, where anything could happen and it could be lethal when we come right back with Al Giddings. 
And we're back with Al Giddings, and it's September 1995, and it turns out um, these dives to Titanic are taking place in the middle of a unusually strong hurricane season. On one occasion, it was so rough uh, that when we were recovered, when the crane picked us up out of the water, the submarine was swinging, and the pendulum was such that we slammed into the side of the Keldish. Oh, wow. And broke a bunch of things hanging down and lights broken off and whatever. Dangerous stuff. Uh, that was a very, very bad moment. I mean, if, if somehow it broke the, uh, the crane or the cable or something, the, and submarine, really any the part. submarine would just go into the, into the ocean like a... So you the know, next dive after buoyancy. that is probably a spooky dive. Huh? <laughs> the next dive after that, real. I mean, yeah, you got to check you're everything. You're inside but. looking out a little, you know, four-inch porthole. You, you have no idea what's going on, you know, in a yeah. case like that. When things go wrong, how do you control your adrenaline? Uh, I have a tendency to get perhaps a bit more quiet and... Uh, to look for time to think things through and uh, not react immediately unless the situation, you know, calls for that. But, you know, you could feel an adrenaline surge, but you know it's time for the right call. So you can't let your emotions sort of uh, run to the forefront and run away with the moment. I mean, logic and, and, uh, and, you know, careful consideration is called for. When you were aboard the Keldish, a uh, plane flew in some developed film that mm -hmm. you guys had shot. And this was the first footage that you'd seen of, uh, of, of what you'd been capturing um, of Titanic there. But what was that like, seeing all of that for the first time? Well, you can well imagine, extremely rewarding. Yeah. I mean, considering the effort, the investment, and all the players, and on and on. Uh, what made it even more amazing is here we are over Titanic, and an airplane shows up about 100 feet off the water, and everyone runs up to the outer deck, and... Uh, and there's lots of signals and carrying on. A boat, a small rubber boat is launched, and on the second or third pass, the plane drops a package into the sea. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, a huge big splash. You know, how could anything survive it? Yeah. Was the question. What and all was in that? It wasn't just film, film. canisters, yeah, was it? Film rolls. It was all the film. Wow. Develop one light work, or work print. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, uh, so receiving film was a very dramatic business it didn't happen much because we're it was a long poke to reach us and back yeah. it was really quite dangerous uh but the zodiac went out picked it up and then we screened it 35 millimeters the resolution and and the detail was fantastic uh, although you know i'm an hd guy i really like that format and and tape for a hundred reasons but the images were stunning no question about it you and james cameron share an incredible work ethic what was it like to essentially be his co-pilot for what became the most successful film of all time well it was one of the most exciting adventures of my life and uh 
you know, it was a combination of uh, sort of the real deal and Hollywood. And uh, for me, the challenge technically was exciting, deep ocean cameras, deep ocean lighting, all that it meant to engineer that, make it all work and, and make those images. Uh, and then the success of the film, I mean, what can I say? How, how, how much more uh, of a high <laughs> can one realize? Uh, Imagine, you know, I started, as I said, taking pictures with an Argus C3 Matchmatic along the coast of kelp gardens and abalones and... And uh, here I wa was in uh, Beijing, you know, talking to graduate students that, that fainted at the mere, you know, mention of the film Titanic. So, you know, once in a lifetime, there's no question about it. You've inspired a lot of people to consider a world that maybe they wouldn't think about otherwise. In many ways, what movies, what fictional movies are all about, they can impact real life things. Yeah, it's. A huge challenge, very exciting and very rewarding, you know, to open or to be or to participate in sort of opening inner space. You know, the whole of the focus has been on outer space and moon landings and Mars tomorrow and on and on. Uh, you know, it was said that, uh, you know, we burst the shackles of gravity to soar into the heavens, leaving seven-tenths of the planet unexplored. And um, and I was there in the very, very beginning of it all. And, uh, you know, to see that technology go through for over 50 years, so many changes, and, uh, and, and to be on that front line and you know, sort of a pioneering capacity was, yeah, uh, I'd say. was, was pretty dazzling. You showed me a picture of you and Anatoly and Jim Cameron on your trip to Russia. And with your permission, I'd love to share that. You know, Jim is perhaps the greatest filmmaker of all times. He's difficult, but high achievers can be difficult. He, uh, as I've said before, we'll leave his own blood on the table, which really is to be admired. No one has ever worked with me shoulder to shoulder through this sort of uh, stress and strain of 10,500 scuba bottles on the abyss. As I said before, you know, he, as far as I know, he doesn't drink, he doesn't do drugs. His main line is, is great films. And considering what he's delivered to date, it's pretty evident that um, that he has an unbelievable capacity in almost every facet of filmmaking. And the end product is as good as it gets. Al Giddings, an icon, a pioneer of underwater photography. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, you're very welcome. This has been a special bonus episode of Blockbuster. For Al Giddings, I'm Matt Schrader. If you liked what you're hearing, be sure to give us a five-star review or get in touch with us at getblockbuster.com, at BlockbusterPod on social media, or follow me, at Matt Schrader, on Twitter. Thanks for listening.